Good morning, church. Yeah, it's good to be here with you in the house of the Lord. Let's stand together and let's sing, You Never Let Go. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, your perfect love is casting out fear And even when I'm caught in the middle of the storms of this life I won't turn back, I know you are near And I will fear no evil For my God is with me And if my God is Through the 
to see everybody this fine, lovely Sunday. You guys doing well? Good, good. Well, it's great to have you all here with us today. Um, as I often like to do when we begin a service, I'd love to welcome our guests and visitors that are here with us this morning. If you got a worship guide on your way in, then you can open that up. And on the right-hand side, there's a way for you to leave any information for us so that we can follow up with you, answer any questions you may have, and make sure that we can respond to any needs that you may have during this season of life. Uh, but we are grateful that you're here with us. We're excited to worship alongside you this morning. Uh, it's been a good week. Uh, you know, we've, we've been going through a series. Uh, we started here at the beginning of 2017 where we worked through some key convictions. And we're continuing to work through those throughout the next couple of weeks. Uh, but last week we really had an emphasis on prayer. And we've had the opportunity to sign up for days that we're going to try to set aside for intentional prayer. And you can do that down the hallway. Uh, we also, this past Wednesday, launched kind of our first corporate call to prayer as a church family. That we're going to be spending the last Wednesday of every month gathering together in the Watson Chapel to pray as a church family. And that was a great first start. And so thank you for those of you that were able to be there. I want to remind you that we'll continue to do that and it will look different each month. We're going to continue to grow and learn in those things as we seek to come together and pray. Now, as we begin today, here's a couple of thoughts for you. Um, I went to the stock show yesterday, uh, along with the entire city of Fort Worth, apparently. And so once I parked in Plano and was able to walk all the way in, I actually had a pretty interesting experience. It was pretty fun. The family was out there, but I had to enter in through the, through the fair part, you know, like the carnival and all the games. Man, you, you know, anytime you step into a carnival, it's just like an onslaught to the senses, isn't it? I mean, it is just... Everything is, is begging for your attention. You know, play this, eat this, do this. I mean, everywhere you turn, it's just something demanding your attention. And it's amazing how distracted you can get in that environment. And I was just walking through that, thinking about that yesterday. And I realized that in some ways, it feels like life has kind of turned into a giant carnival for us, hasn't it? 
right? That, that everything demands our attention. That everywhere we turn, we have a voice or, or something calling us to, to do this, play this, engage in this. And it's, it can distract us from the important things. That while it's important for us to still pay attention to those things, we need to stop every once in a while and reflect upon, well, what am I missing? What, what am I being distracted from? Where does my focus really need to be? How do I quiet the noise? Well, in some respects, that's what we are seeking to do here when we gather on a Sunday morning. It's a moment to, to step out of that chaos and into the presence of an almighty God. Refocus and reorient our hearts, our souls, and our minds on the things that really matter. So as we do that today, we're going to continue this discussion, and it's going to lead us to this topic of fasting. But ultimately, what I, what I would like for you to prepare your hearts for as we continue in a spirit of worship is that we find something significant when we focus in on God. We can discover this beautiful prayer that really all we need in life, Jesus, that he is sufficient, he is enough. He should be the one thing that we long for and that we crave. And that's what we're trying to express this morning, to find the power in that prayer that says, Lord Jesus, come quickly, because we know he is sufficient. And we see this beautiful response from God when he says, here am I. Well, let's celebrate that truth and let's cultivate that prayer this morning. Would you bow your heads? Father, thank you for this day. So be in our midst. Let's worship you, Father. Let us condition ourselves, let us condition our hearts, our souls, and our minds to say with one voice that you are sufficient. You are all that we need. Let's quiet the noise, distractions, and long for you to come in, to be near us, and let us celebrate the fact that you are Emmanuel, God with us. Let's worship you in spirit and truth today. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, let me invite the children to come forward to spend some time with Miss Caroline. The rest of you, why don't you stand up and greet each other and offer a word of welcome. together you're my supply you're my supply my breath of life still more awesome than I know you're my reward worth living for still more awesome than I know and all of you is more than
You can be seated. I'm I am hearing rumors up here about chocolate cake and Skittles. I know, I'm with you, girl. Chocolate cake and Skittles and cookies. And you know what? One of my friends up there, I like Skittles too. One of my friends said, I didn't get any Skittles. And you know what I said? I didn't get any Skittles. And then Warner's up here, whoa, Warner's up here offering uh, chocolate cake around. And I'm like, hey, Warner, here I am. I'll take some chocolate cake. And Warner's like, no. And I'm going, you know what? I'm thinking that I see some friends that like Skittles. You know what? I also think when I look around, I see some friends that like to read books. Do I see some friends that like to read books? Yeah. We like, we're good readers. I think I see some friends that like to play video games. Do I see any friends that like to do that? Okay. Do I see any friends that like to play outside whenever it's sunny? Some of y'all, yeah, yeah, I'm thinking I like to play outside too. You know what? We're going to be talking about something today. And our pastor's going to be talking about, and he's going to be talking about how we fast. And in the midst of that, I was thinking, well, what does that mean for me? What does that mean for you guys? And what does that mean for my sweet Sawyer Ann? You know what? I think there's a lot of things that we like. And sometimes when we remember that we like Jesus the most, it means that whenever we're doing something we really, really like, that sometimes we stop it for just a second or for a day or for two, and we say, you know what? Instead of this one thing that I really like, I'm going to think about Jesus during this time, and I'm going to pray to him, and I'm going to ask him to guide me. Well, you know what? I'm thinking that some of you guys know that Miss Caroline likes Dr. Pepper, right? Yeah. And you know what? I think that some of you guys know that there's probably a better choice I could be out there having instead of Dr. Pepper, right? What would that be? Water. Water. You know what? And so there's other things that sometimes instead of Dr. Pepper, I can have water, which is better for me. Well, sometimes the way that Miss Caroline is thinking, she needs to stop thinking the way that she is and she needs to do something better, which is trying to think the way that God has for her to think. Remembering the scripture promises that he's given us, remembering that I can pray to him and remembering that I can um, ask him and seek him to lead me in what I love most so that above all else, it would be Jesus that I love more than anything else. I have two friends that are going to read for me to help encourage me. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. You know what? We want our treasure to be with God, and we want our heart to be with Him, and we don't want anything, whether it's Skittles or chocolate cake or even even something that maybe might be a better choice like salad. We don't want anything to stand in the way of our treasure being with God alone. Let's make sure our treasure is there with him. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we want our treasure to be solely in you. Father, we want our heart to be focused on you and loving you and following your way, remembering your words of your promise, your words of scripture. Unite our hearts to yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Stand together and sing like a river glorious.
There's nothing in this world that could ever satisfy. Through every trial, my soul will sing, no turning back. I've been set free. our home through every throne my soul will sing Jesus is here to God be the glory Christ is enough for me Christ turning back I have decided to follow Jesus no turning back no turning back the cross before me the world behind me no turning back no turning back the cross before me behind me no turning back no turning back Christ is enough for me Christ is enough for me everything I need turning back no turning back I have decided to follow Jesus no turning back no turning back Amen. you can be seated thank you guys The word of the Lord, according to the prophet Isaiah, chapter 58. 
Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? But only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is this what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice, to tie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. You will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and will say, here am I. Let's pray. Father, we love you. So send your spirit now to awaken our hearts and our minds. See you fully. See how we were fearfully and wonderfully made that we might respond to you appropriately, give you the glory and honor that you deserve. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. So we started 2017 off with this idea and a reminder that our hope is, is found in the God who makes all things new, right? That, that there is something beautiful about our God, that he is a God who restores, who, who gives rebirth and renewal. So we looked at Psalm 98 and we talked about the power of singing a new song before the Lord. We sing a new song for he has done marvelous things. And this was an appropriate place for us to start because obviously I was new to this role, new to this church, and it was kind of a marker for us to acknowledge that there is a new beginning in front of us, that God's doing a new thing in our midst. And so we wanted to see and put our hope in the power of this God who creates new things. And so we look forward to this new journey that he has set us upon, and we do so with an understanding that there are these key convictions that are going to guard this journey that are going to guide it, that are going to shape it. And so for the last few weeks, we've walked through some of those convictions that will define who we want to be as well as who we want this church to be. We started with a discussion on being gospel-centered, reminding ourselves that everything we do is measured against the gospel of Jesus Christ. So both individually and as a church, the, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus is what defines us. We will be centered upon the gospel. That is what our task and our charge is to do. And then we moved from that and we talked about the importance of being biblically guided, right? That we're going to see the scriptures as authoritative, that, that we live in a culture and a time now that no longer wants to put up with sound doctrine, right? That we have this propensity to gather teachers around us that are going to just tell us what our itching ears want to hear. We have to guard against these false teachings and cling to the fact that the scriptures are God-breathed. They're useful. They can teach us and rebuke us and correct us and train us in righteousness. We're going to be guided by the scriptures. Last week, we moved into the importance of prayer. Right, we, we talked about that we're going to be a church. We're going to be people that are prayer-driven. 
We defined prayer as this beautiful access that we have to God, that we simply said prayer is the gateway to the heart. It's this moment where the the spirit of the individual is taken to the heart of God, and at the same time, the spirit of God is taken to the heart of the individual. We relished in that quote from Oswald Chambers that prayer does not fit us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. And so today is really kind of part two of that discussion, that it's not just prayer, it's prayer and fasting. So if you're a guest today, congratulations. You picked this sermon about fasting. And so uh, I apologize, but you may not leave too hungry today. Hopefully it's a little bit more meaningful than that as we go through this topic. But, but we are going to focus on how fasting can complement and accentuate our prayers. Now, after we finish this today, February is going to lead us into this continued discussion on these convictions, but then we're going to focus more on discipleship and evangelism, some of my favorite topics. So I can't wait to get there. So let's, let's consider this topic of fasting. So I, I went to Fuller Theological Seminary in Southern California. And when I think back on my experience at Fuller, it's a really fond experience. I really enjoyed it. And and I often tell people that when I think about Fuller, what it did is that it didn't teach me what to think, it taught me how to think. There's a big difference in that. Their their goal was not to bring people in and say, here's what's right, here's what's wrong. You memorize these facts, regurgitate them to us, and then you'll get your degree. They opened it up for a very large variety of ideas and discussions, which can be dangerous can make people uncomfortable, but, but they cling to the truth, they, they cling to orthodoxy, and, and their point is to say, you need to understand why you believe what you believe, and how do you come to those conclusions? And so it, it, it was often filled with these exercises and these, these exchanges that made me realize some of the presumptions that I bring to my faith. There is one exchange in my homiletics class, which is a class on the introduction to preaching, more or less. There's a guest speaker in there, and she was trying to create an awareness of how we often have these cultural influences that that dictate how we understand the scripture. And so she told us this story, and I can't remember if this was something she experienced personally or if it was something she read, but she talked about how there were these three groups of people. The first group was predominantly Western, with an American background. The second group was more of a Russian background or the Eastern part of the world. And then the third group had a kind of tribal um, African village background and context. And so these three groups were presented the same story from the passages of Scripture, the story of the prodigal son. And if you're unfamiliar with that story, let me briefly remind you of it. You have this son who shows up to his father and demands his share of the estate, essentially saying, you're dead to me. I'm going to go my own way. Can I have my inheritance now? So the father agrees, and the son takes his money. He leaves his father. He goes out on his own. And as the story goes, he squanders his wealth on wild living is what the scriptures say. So after he he squanders his wealth, a famine comes in through the land and he finds himself in great need. And so he hires himself out to go feed these pigs in the field and he's so hungry, he's in so much need, he, he actually craves and starves for the very food that the pigs are eating. And yet nobody is there to help him. And so he looks at this and he thinks, gosh, you know, even my father's servants lived better than I did in this situation. Perhaps I can go back and while he won't acknowledge me as a son, maybe he'll let me work in his estate and I can be a servant for him. So he heads back to his father. The father sees him from a distance, right, coming down the road and he gets up and he runs to him and the son says, I know I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but would you welcome me back to be a servant? And the father says, no, he hugs him, he kisses him, he puts a robe around him, he puts a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And he says, go and and slaughter the fattened calf, for my son who was lost is now found. It's a beautiful story of a father's love. 
So this story is presented to these three different groups of people, and it's presented with the question, what, what was the main thing that led to the demise of the son? Like, what put him in such a difficult situation? And all three groups gave different answers. For the first group, those with more of an American context said, well, he squandered his wealth. And he lived wildly. He was irresponsible. He, he wasn't a good steward of what God had given him. But it's interesting, the second group with more of the, the Russian and Eastern context said, well, no, there is a famine in the land. You, you can't anticipate that. You can't prepare for that. That impacts everybody. In the third group, more of the, the village society and context, they said, well, no, there was no community. They helped him in his time of need. How could he ever get through that if he didn't have a sense of community? What's interesting about that is every answer is true. Every answer, that's in the parable. And yet what we see is that every cultural framework influenced what they saw in the scriptures. And so the speaker in this class was trying to get us to see that a lot of times we approach the scriptures and our culture influences our understanding of what's in the text. And it can often lead us to maybe an incomplete understanding of what the scriptures are trying to say. Well, this is an important story and an uh, an understanding for us to embrace this morning if we're really going to be able to wrestle with this concept of fasting. Okay, when I thought about teaching on this subject, I, I thought the main problem we were going to have with the discussion of fasting would be motivation, right? That people know it's a practice, but we're just not motivated enough to do it. But as I began to prepare, I was, I was kind of convicted that that's not really where this story begins. Like, let me, let me reference this book that I picked up this week. It's written by Scott McKnight, and it's on the subject of fasting. Uh, I highly recommend it if you're interested in the topic. Because as I started to read, he really convicted me of what the real issue was. And he brings this to our attention. He says, and, and I guess I should preface, a good chunk of the first part of the sermon, I'm, I'm borrowing from a lot of what's in McKnight's book, okay? I'm going to be paraphrasing and quoting him throughout this. So I want to give credit where credit is due. And, and so what he says is that a lot of times we assume the problem with fasting is motivation. But the real problem is body image. Well, I thought that was an interesting statement. What, what does he mean by that? He goes on to explain that one of the things that prevents us from understanding the power of fasting is what's ingrained in our Western DNA, that we have a cultural lens that we approach to this subject that that becomes kind of an inhibitor for us to understand the importance of fasting. Here's what he talks about. He says that this really comes from the teachings of Plato, right? That there's this Platonian philosophy of dualism that has influenced um, Kant and Freud and Darwin and so many others that have helped shape Western society and color our understanding of our existence. Now, I'm not going to get us too lost in philosophy. Here, here's the main point that Plato teaches, that essentially there's the immaterial world that is perfect and what is really good, and then there's the material world that is just a shadow or reflection of it. And so as a result, the, the immaterial is the good things that we aspire to and the forms are more of a lower representation. So the consequence then to our existence is that we are carved up into a soul and a body. And the soul, that while it is immaterial, it is the good thing that we must preserve. And the body is something that traps the soul. The soul is imprisoned in the body. So when we die, our soul finally escapes this prison and gets to live as it needs to. This is a pretty common way of thinking about our existence in our country and in our culture. Right, that we have this separation between soul and body, and so we exalt the importance of the soul and we diminish the importance of the body. So McKnight builds on that and says, as a result, we have a distorted view of our physical existence. He offers four different categories of how we often view ourselves. Uh, he, he breaks them up. He says the first one would be this. A lot of times we think about our physical bodies and we see it as a monster to be conquered. 
right? Every impulse, every desire, every, every inclination is something that must be beaten into submission, that we must resist it, we must uh, go above those temptations. And it's this philosophy that when taken to an extreme application can lead to kind of this radical monasticism where we just deny ourselves everything, right? Well, that's an unhealthy approach, but we see it because it's a monster to be conquered. His second group is that sometimes we see our bodies as a celebrity to be glorified, right? So we spend all this time at the gym, we work out, we eat healthy, we have plastic surgery, we do everything we can to look attractive because the body is a celebrity to be glorified. Right? It's, it leads us to narcissism. Or third category that often colors our understanding of the body is that it's a cornucopia to be filled, is what he says. Right? It's a vessel that just needs to consume, consume, consume. Whether that's food or, or anything that gives us pleasure, that's what our bodies are there for. This kind of pleasure-driven lifestyle. And the fourth, he says, is that for others, they see the body as a wallflower to be ignored. Right, that the body is so unimportant, it doesn't matter what we eat, doesn't matter what we do, that, that our identity is really driven by just our soul and our inner nature, so we can do whatever we want to the body. Well, obviously, these four categories have a, a, a distorted view of our existence and reality and can be taken to an extreme that is fairly destructive and fairly unhealthy. You can see why this teaching that has kind of permeated our culture can lead us astray from what we really should believe about our existence. So the first place that we need to begin today in this discussion of fasting is, how do you view your physical existence? What view do you have of your body? That may be an odd question, but it's an important one for us to answer. Which category of those four do you fall in? How do you understand your existence? The reason that's important is because if it distorts what we see in Scripture, then we need to awaken ourselves to a clearer understanding of how it was that we were truly created and how God wants us to see it. We don't need to surrender what our culture wants us to see about our physical existence, but what the scriptures teach. So let's be reminded of that for a moment. Now, the challenge is, is that when we open the Bible and we see how our physical nature is supposed to exist, we do see a tension, don't we? That there is a sinful nature that we must resist in order to live according to the Spirit. So we do have that teaching. But notice that the Bible never takes it so far as to say your soul is all that matters and your body is unimportant. Well, there's a much more beautiful picture of what God has done when he created us. Let's go back to Genesis for a moment and remember the moments that God speaks the physical world into existence. Right? Right? He, he creates all the, the physical nature around us, the, the sun, the moon, the stars, the, sand, the, the land, the sea, the birds of the air, the feast of the field. He creates all of it, and at every turn, he says it is good. And he creates male and female. It's very good. Why the difference? What's so different about the way that you and I are created? Well, what the scriptures teach, we bear the image of our creator. We are made in the image of a holy and living God. Now, when he creates, he's not creating some immaterial world, right? He's not just creating our souls. We actually walked in the garden, or we actually named the animals, we grabbed the fruit, we took it, we ate, we bit. And when that shame of our sin, we were clothed with garments. There was a physical existence and that physical existence is in the image of God. This is what leads the psalmist to say that we are fearfully and wonderfully made because our physical nature represents a holy and living God. So notice how the teachings of scripture permeate throughout the text. Paul writes this letter to the church in Corinth. And he talks about the importance of the body. 
He does it in a couple of ways. Early in the letter, he, he references the fact that he says, don't you realize your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And then later in chapter 15 of that letter, he talks about the mystery of the resurrection. And, and this is a beautiful passage. It's, it's mind-blowing. I don't know that we can fully understand it, but it's beautiful. He starts with this question, how are the dead raised? Right, what does that resurrection look like? And he, he uses this imagery of the seed being planted in the ground, that a flower blooms when a seed dies and is planted. And so in the same way, our bodies will, will die and we will be sown into the ground perishable, but we will be raised imperishable. A transformation takes place. There seems to be a physical nature to that transformation. He explains it a little bit further, and he's referencing the difference between Adam and Christ. Now, he doesn't use Adam and Christ, but that's what he's referring to as the earthly man and the heavenly man. And he begins to explain to us that, that Adam, while he was made in the image of God, what we see there is that he still represents our fallen nature, right? And that eventually we will transform from that fallen nature into the nature of Christ, and so what he says is, is that in the same way that we bear the image of the earthly man, which is Adam, we also bear the image of the heavenly man, which is Christ. So that takes us back to Jesus himself. What, what happens when Jesus is raised from the dead? He doesn't appear as just some spirit. He doesn't appear in some soulful representation. He is physically present. He stands before Mary. He walks with the, the strangers on the road to Emmaus. He sits down with his disciples and he says, feed me. And he eats in their midst. He comes before those that doubt and he says, put your hands in my scars, touch me and see that I am real. Jesus has a physical resurrected body. And so what we begin to see in the full teachings of the scripture is that God didn't just send his son so that our souls could be saved, right? We don't just anticipate some heaven where our souls get to go and flutter around. No, we look forward to a new heaven and a new earth and a holy city of Jerusalem that we must realize that all of creation groans in eager anticipation to be set free from the bonds of sin and death because that redemption is a complete and total redemption. He is coming to redeem all of it, not just part of it. Our bodies matter. So we must embrace that reality. And when we do and we see our existence as not just soul and mind and heart, but soul, mind, heart, and body, well, fasting becomes a little bit more natural. It's the moment where we give a whole expression to God. I love the way that McKnight begins to define it in his book. He says, fasting is the body talking what the spirit yearns, what the soul longs for, and what the mind knows to be true. Fasting is one way that you and I bring our entire selves into complete expression. So what we need to acknowledge here is that our physical response to our faith matters. Even if it's a small gesture, there's something powerful that when we pray, we might kneel before the Lord. That, that we are taking that moment and that gesture to represent with our physical bodies what our soul feels, to surrender and give reverence to an almighty God. Or think about how the psalmist or King David dances before the Lord, right? That the joy that he feels in his heart cannot be contained just for his soul, but he has to express it with his entire creation, his entire existence. So fasting is this practice that brings what our heart and our souls long for into an entire expression as a response to God. So that all of us, our entire creation, responds to him accordingly. So that's step one. Understanding a full understanding of our existence. Now, step two is to see 
the importance of it and how it is a natural response from God's people. So here's what I want to do for this. I want to read through some scriptures, okay? And, and my hope is that through reading through these scriptures, we can get a sense of just the regularity and the natural response that fasting was for the people of God. Let me start in Deuteronomy chapter 9 and, and talk about Moses, okay? Moses says, Then I lay prostrate before the Lord as before. For 40 days and 40 nights I neither ate bread nor drank water because all the sin you had committed. Joshua chapter 20. They fasted that day until evening and presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings to the Lord. 1 Samuel chapter 7. On that day they fasted and there they confessed. We have sinned against the Lord. 1 Samuel 31. After hearing of Saul's death, they took his bones and fasted for seven days. Esther chapter 4. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king. And even though it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Psalm 109, I fade away like an evening shadow. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees give way from fasting. My body is thin and gaunt. Jeremiah 36, in the ninth month of the fifth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, a time of fasting before the Lord was proclaimed for all the people in Jerusalem. Daniel chapter 9, so I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition and fasting and sackcloth and in ashes. Joel chapters 1 and 2, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly. Even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your hearts and not your clothing. The Ninevites, Jonah chapter 3, the Ninevites believed God and a fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. Zechariah chapter 8, this is what the Lord Almighty says, the fast of the fourth, fifth, seventh, and tenth months will become joyful and glad occasions and happy festivals for Judah. Let's get to the New Testament quickly. Let's think about Jesus. Matthew chapter 4, his ministry begins after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights and he was hungry. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, but when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face. Acts chapter 13, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. Is that sufficient enough? See, what we begin to see is that fasting in the Hebrew is, is sum. It simply means to, to abstain from food or drink as a gesture of dedication or petition to the Lord. It's the same definition, more or less, in the Greek. What we begin to see is that this fasting was a regular response from the people of the Lord. You can read through the pages of Scripture and you can look at the heroes of the faith like Moses and Jesus himself and how they modeled it. And you can see the variations in which fasting was, was practiced, that for sometimes it was an evening. Maybe it was a full day, three days, seven days, 40 days. Sometimes it was partial food. Sometimes it was food and drink. I mean, there's a whole different way in which it's practiced. And all the different responses that, that it was speaking to address. Sometimes it was a response to sin or the threats of the nation or grief or a specific petition or, or gladness and joy. I mean, there are all these different things that prompt the fasting of God's people. But at the very end of the day, we can see it was a natural response from the people of God. Fasting has to be what we practice. It has to be something that we do. And that's part of why I'm, I'm putting it before us as a challenge. This is something that I believe needs to complement and accentuate our prayers. 
So I referenced this earlier, that if you leave here today and you go down that hallway, you'll see that big bulletin board that has all the different colored pages, numbered 1 to 31. This is the personal challenge that we're extending to each other, that we're going to set aside one day every month to pray and fast for the power of God to be unleashed. So if you missed that direct challenge last week or if you've missed it since then, uh, go today and stand before one of those pages and sign your name and pick a day that you're going to set aside to, to increase your prayer life and increase your practice of fasting before the Lord. Now, last week we talked about prayer. Let, let me give you a little bit more practical guidance on what I, I'm hoping for us to encounter with fasting. So here's the first thing I want to say when we think about how we're going to pray and fast together. The first thing I would tell you is that when your day shows up and it's your turn, um, it needs to be spirit-led. Don't fast because I've asked you to. Don't fast because you put your name on a piece of paper. That's between you and God. Fast because he's prompting you to do so. That's where it begins. If we miss that step, then it's an exercise in futility. It doesn't matter. So start with it being spirit-led. The second thing is that when you fast, it's not for show. We're not trying to do this to bring attention to ourselves, okay? So on your day, don't like call a bunch of people up to go out to eat and be like, can't, I'm fasting, right? I mean, it's, it's not for your own benefit. And I know that may seem a little ironic because I'm like, sign your name on a board, let everybody see it, right? But the, the point that I'm trying to make is that we're doing this as a gesture of solidarity. We're putting our names up there so that we can see we're doing this together. And I think it makes a statement to us that every time we come in here or any time a visitor comes, we can see that every single day, people in this church are praying and fasting for the power of God to be unleashed. Beyond that solidarity, it's between you and him. And so don't do it for show. Let it be spirit-led. But I would also say start appropriately. Right? There's, there's some flexibility in this journey of fasting that I think we can cling to today. On one level, it's the duration of time. You can read through those scriptures and see that some it was an evening, some it was a day, several days. It's more than that. I wouldn't recommend starting with the 40-day fast of no food or drink. I, I would start a little bit smaller if I were you. And, and so find some flexibility in the duration. And, and not even just that, but flexibility in what it is you're fasting from. Now, if I could be pretty clear, I, I would tell you that I believe biblically fasting is really driven towards food. It's really kind of the biblical gesture of fasting. So I, I would encourage you to try that because I think there's something powerful when we deny our bodies food. It, it awakens our physical existence in ways that few other things can. But that said, I realize that that may not be possible, that there are gonna be some days that fasting from food is gonna draw unnecessary attention to yourself. Maybe there's health concerns, dietary restrictions. I get that. And so if it needs to be something else, then let it be something else. But what I would encourage you is that whatever it is, it, it needs to be something you feel physically throughout the day. <clears throat> it needs to have some sort of consistent awareness. So if you say, well, I'm going to fast from chocolate, but you never really eat chocolate, well, you're missing the point. Well, I'm going to fast from breakfast, but you never really eat breakfast. Well, that, that doesn't, I mean, it needs to be something that you feel consistently throughout the day. Let, let me tell you one that I've discovered that works for me. Days that I can't fast from food, um, I fast from technology. It's, it's alarming and somewhat embarrassing how much my body literally craves to check my phone or to be in front of a screen throughout the day. And yet that impulse that I feel helps awaken my physical existence to be refocused on the prayers that I'm praying for. So whatever it is, let it, let it have something that actually impacts you that you feel throughout the day. 
And that's what we're trying to do, okay? So there's some flexibility, there's some freedom there, and hopefully what we do is that creates a greater attention towards our prayer and our fasting. Now, now let's get to the third step. The first step is understanding our existence, and the second step is to figure out the structure and the biblical mandate for fasting. Well, the third draws us to the heart of what it is that we're actually supposed to be fasting for. This gets us back to our text, Isaiah 58. You know, I love the way it starts, but it starts in a pretty harsh tone, doesn't it? Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet and declare to my people their rebellion. Descendants of Jacob, their sins. One of the things that we need to acknowledge is that prayer and fasting is often driven by an awareness of rebellion and sin is typically what's going to be the catalyst for us to respond accordingly. Now, we need to be careful with how we respond because the opening passage here in 58 is going to tell us we can't fool God. But he says, look at them. They, they seem like they're eager to know me. They seem like they want just decisions and that they, they want me to come near. What he's saying is, is that it's an act. You and I need to realize is that we, we can give an appearance. We can create a facade of our spirituality have it be emptied of the heart of what's really important. Put it, we know how to play church, don't we? We can, we can do this. We can go through the motions. We, could, we can embrace this challenge and write our name on a piece of paper and go without food all we want. And completely miss the point. If we do that, it becomes a ritual. We find ourselves looking at God saying, well, well, we fasted and you didn't hear us. We humbled ourselves. Did you not notice? We need to be prepared for the response where God's going to say, yeah, you fast and you go on and do whatever you want not the fasting I've chosen for you, to exploit others, to end in quarreling and strife and animosity and violence. You think that's what I want from you, just to, just to humble yourself for a day, just to bow your head low and, and lay around in sackcloth and ashes? That's not what I want. We need to take seriously what is it that prompts us to fast. It's the heart of these prayers. This is where Isaiah 58 gained significant power and strength to me. If we're going to have one passage that guides our efforts towards pray, praying and fasting, let it be this one. For the, the Lord brings us in and he tells to us, this is the fasting that I've chosen for you, to loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free. And I love that. Because now we get to see that, that what complements that awareness of rebellion and sin and what typically is going to demand a response from the Lord's people is, is injustice and impression. So I don't wanna run past that this morning, okay? I, I want us to give some serious consideration to how injustice can prompt us to prayer and fasting. And I'm gonna reference a few uh, subjects today that honestly, we're gonna continue to discuss throughout the year. We're, we're gonna come back to these. And as we come back to them, we'll look a little bit more pragmatically in terms of, of how we engage them from a ministerial standpoint. Today, I just wanna talk about how they should prompt us towards prayer and fasting. So let me, let me begin with one injustice that we see, one that's been pretty prevalent in the news lately, something that is constantly brought to our attention. We're frequently reminded of the fact that we live in a world where there are around 65.3 million people who are displaced from their homes. Of that 65 million, about half of them are under the age of 18. And according to the United Nations, it's the highest number on record to have that many people. 33,000 972 people per day are forced to leave their home because of persecution and violence. What that means is, is that we get to wake up today, have breakfast, come to church, 
sit in Sunday school, sit in a sanctuary, lunch here in a little bit, go home, maybe watch some TV, do some chores, watch the Pro Bowl if we're really bored, do some things here and there, and end our day. And while we do that, 33,972 people will be forced out of their homes because of persecution and violence today. That is an injustice that demands the response of God's people. Now, what grieves me, and what I have to be careful with this morning and resist the urge to, is that the political arena has hijacked it. We have to figure out what is the response to this refugee crisis. So regardless of what you think about the executive orders or what an administration should do or what a country should or shouldn't do about our borders and our safety, forget all that. Let me tell you that at the very core, God's people should respond to that injustice with prayer and fasting. That's where it begins, the very least. Let's consider another one. Let's talk about orphans for a moment. And let's not view this from a global perspective. Let's bring this a little bit closer to home. I found this study uh, that was done by Focus on the Family a couple years ago. It's 2014. So these figures may be a little dated. But, but they talked about the, the um, issue of, of orphans in America. Now, the, the thing is that when we talk about our country, we don't typically refer to it as orphanages and orphans. We, we typically start with a conversation on foster care. That we have a system that, that children can go through to, to receive care while they're going through certain strife and struggles, and that end result may ultimately lend them to being back with their parents or with other family members. But there is a point to which they go through that system and they go through that process where the only way forward is adoption. Okay, so there is a classification for these children in foster care that are identified as those waiting to be adopted. And according to this study a couple years ago, there was around 102,000 children in our country that were waiting to be adopted. And what was remarkable about this study is that they, they took the number of children and they broke it down per state. And they compared the number of children in each state to the number of churches in each state. 49 out of 50 states had more churches than children waiting to be adopted. One that didn't was Nevada. So if we ever need an idea for a church plant, maybe we start there. But, but what was remarkable, Texas, 13,000 children, more or less, waiting to be adopted. 27,000 churches. Let's, let's be conservative, and let's say the average church size in America is around 80 people, and every single church in Texas was average, which we know isn't the case, right? There are several that are way more than 80 people. But let's say every single one was 80 people. That would mean there were over 2 million church-going Christians to respond to the 13,000 children waiting for a home. It's an injustice that demands a response from God's people. Human trafficking. International Justice Mission is going to tell us that there are around 45 million people around the world held in modern-day slavery. Whether that's forced labor or sexual exploitation or, or some complete abuse of their personal rights, sometimes impacting children as young as four years old and even younger. It's the second most lucrative organized crime industry in the world, bringing in billions of dollars every year. It's an injustice that demands a response of God's people. Maybe we can talk about drug use. You know, since the year 2000, until today, that the, the number of deaths from drug overdoses has increased by 137%. Now, more people die from a drug overdose than they do car crashes. It's an injustice that demands a response from God's people. We could look around the world and see these injustices and see this oppression, but, but let me stop and also acknowledge that when we start this prayer initiative, we're starting with a focus on our own lives. What does God's power need to do within me? But let me ask, what oppression do you face personally? What injustice do you combat? What enslaves you? Some of you come into the sanctuary and you're, 
You're chained by complacency, apathy. You're playing the game. You can go through the motions, you know what to say, you know how to answer, but deep down within, there's no vibrancy, no vitality, chained to it. Others are shackled by materialism. So driven, so consumed by that which we can acquire. Whether it's status, wealth, success, prestige, and it, and it chains us. Some of us are bound by <clears throat> sexual immorality, addiction. Look at things we shouldn't look at, we do things we shouldn't do. Engage in practices that are ultimately destructive, and they're killing us. Some of us are trapped <clears throat> by the pain of grief. There's nothing we can do to escape it. Some of us are imprisoned by <clears throat> loneliness, despair, guilt. What oppression do you feel today? Whatever it is, man's a response to God's people. So here's what I've been trying to say for a couple of weeks. If we're looking to the world, or we're looking within, it doesn't matter what program we create. It doesn't matter what ministry we build and what we volunteer in. And those things are empty if we first don't respond with prayer and fasting. If we can give so much energy to put our words and our thoughts and our opinions to, to Facebook, or to our friends or to our family, and we don't have the time to take them to an almighty God, then what are we doing? Fooling ourselves. It demands a response must respond with prayer and fasting for these injustices. And when we see that, when that sin, when that rebellion, when that oppression stirs us and ignites something with us, then we fall on our knees and we pray with our entire existence for this beautiful, powerful gift from God, freedom. <laughs> set the chains loose, to set the captives free that our God delivers us. This is what we pray for. This is what we long for, God's miraculous, amazing freedom. You know what the power of God looks like? It sets the oppressed free. That's what drives our prayer. Now, when we do that, when we pray in such a way and we fast in such a way, the scriptures tell us that, that all of a sudden light breaks forth like the dawn. Healing will quickly appear. The righteousness will go before us. The glory of the Lord will be our rear guard. We will call and he will answer. We will cry out and he will say, here am I. A beautiful picture of prayer and fasting. See, I challenge us with it today and I, and I challenge myself because here's, here's where I grow concerned. I wonder if we've forgotten what it really looks like to cry out to God. So distracted, so busy with all the other noise, we don't even know how to stop and pray and fast and cry out for help. But the beauty of fasting is that the prophets warn, it, it's not a magical formula that's going to guarantee you certain results. It's just the natural response, God. We see sin, when we see rebellion, when we see brokenness, we can't do anything but help ourselves to come before the Lord and pray for freedom. What it should do is it should awaken us to this powerful posture that the way that we carry ourselves through this world and into these atrocities is to understand that, that God sets all people free, that he is enough, that more than we should ever want anything else, we should want Christ, we should want his freedom, we should want his power more than anything else this world has to offer. When we do that, we discover one of my favorite prayers a follower of Jesus can ever pray. It's that moment when we look our eyes to heaven, mindful of all these things that oppress us, and we simply say, Lord Jesus, quickly, he is the answer. And when we do that, something beautiful happens. We see that our longing for him can never compare to his longing for us. That God was so desperate 
to redeem us and to restore us, that he took on flesh and he dwelt among us. And he didn't just give his soul. He didn't just give his heart and his mind and his words. He gave his entire existence, surrendering his body to the point of beating and persecution, even death on a cross so that we could be set free. So that now when we pray, taken to the feet of Jesus, we see that yes, in fact, light has burst forth like the dawn. Healing has quickly come. That his righteousness goes before us. That his glory is our reared protection. That now when we call, we know he will answer. When we cry out for help, see Jesus. We hear God say, am I? Let's pray. Father, we love you. We need you. Father, as the prophet has said to us today, let us hear and be mindful of our rebellion, of our sin, of injustices, of oppression. Let it stir us in such a way that we would fall before you with heart, soul, mind, body, and strength and plead and beg for freedom. You are enough. Let it start here. Let's respond as your people. No matter what we face today, no matter what we encounter, we have lift our voices to heaven and simply say, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We love you. We all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let me extend a word of invitation. Uh, obviously, this is a time in our service where we are asking you to respond to what God is prompting you to do, what it is he's stirring within your heart. For those of you that have never truly made a decision to believe Jesus as Lord and Savior, this is the day to do it. Don't be shy of that. Don't be afraid of that. Make it public. Let's celebrate with you if that's something you want to do. For others of you, you might be looking for a church home, you might be praying about that, and you've decided, you know what, this is a pretty good one, and you want to join this church. Well, we want to celebrate that with you as well. And so you can come forward and make that decision known to us, and we'll, we'll take that in. If you just need prayer, whatever it is you need today, then let's respond appropriately in accordance to God's spirit and prompting. Would you stand together as we sing this song of invitation? you 
You can be seated for just a moment. We have a few announcements, or one announcement and some decisions to share. Good morning. What a wonderful day to be here. My name is Cheryl Wilson, and on behalf of the Women to Women Ministry, I would like to invite all the women of UBC to join us for a brunch honoring our new pastor's wife, Jennifer Smith, on Saturday, February 11th at 10 o'clock. It will be a great time to come and get to know Jennifer better and just to enjoy a time of food and fellowship together. And if you're not yet a member of UBC, we would love for you to come and join us and let us get to know you you as well. And we would also like to especially encourage the young women and our youth and college groups to come be a part of this special day. The tickets are $10 for the brunch and they will be on sale in the main hallway following the worship service today and next Sunday. So I hope you will get a ticket, put February 11th on your calendar and come and join us. I'm looking forward to being with you that day. Thank you. All right, that's my cue. Uh, a couple of announcements as we, before we make some announcements here, these decisions that we've been made. Uh, I think many of you saw the, the notice, if you are the prayer partners of the passing of Gene David. Thank you so much. And so services for, for that uh, loss will be determined a little bit later. We don't have the details yet, but be praying for her family and her friends as well. And then this afternoon, if you're a part of a ministry team, don't forget that we have a quick training in Harris Hall at the conclusion of our service today. But that being said, I've got a lot of people up here. And so let me introduce everybody. Yolanda, if you can come on up with Alexandra. And then Raymond, Christina, and Aiden, you guys come on up. Got a wonderful family here. Thank you so much. And then uh, I'm also going to invite the Fruget family up and the De Silva family. And you guys come on up and stand together. We're going to all do this at the same time. So this is David and Katie Fruget, or, or David Laff, as it would be a... Leif would be the better way to say it, or DL, you can call him DL. And then their daughter Eve and Lissy. And then we have over here Lucas and Shannon and Sianna and Josiah. And all these wonderful folks have decided to make UBC their church home. And so we want to celebrate that decision today. We're glad to have you guys be a part of the church family. Now, obviously, uh, they've made the, the gesture of commitment by coming forward and making this decision public in your presence today to say that this is going to be their church home, a place that they want to invest in and that they want to cultivate and be a part of. And I want us to respond to that decision as a congregation and commit that we're going to be the church home that they need, that we can return that gesture and invest in them and cultivate them and love on them as the way a church family should. So if you would agree to that decision, would you let us know by just saying Amen. Amen. And we want to celebrate that decision today. So after we sing this song uh, of the sending song, then I would invite you all to come forward and shake hands and get to know your new church family members, okay? It's been a great day in the Lord's house. And Lord, let us leave with the spirit of celebration and joy as we seek to honor him with all that we are and all that we have been created to be. Why don't you stand together and let's sing together. Christ is enough for me. Christ is enough for me. Everything I need is in you. Everything I need. Amen. Be blessed today.